Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant. In the future, we may be able to produce hamburger synthetically, sparing the cows and pigs and chickens, but we might also be able to have mammoth burgers and dino steaks. So today is Independence Day in the US, the day when I and much of the audience that lives in the US gorge ourselves on barbecue before setting off roughly 30 kilotons of explosive fireworks. Needless to say, the default main dish of any barbecue tends to be grilled meat, and lots of it, so the future of meat seemed a proper topic for the day. Also, needless to say, meat is often a controversial topic, many folks object to eating meat for moral or environmental reasons, but today we will mostly bypass those considerations. I suspect most of us, regardless of whether it's morally valid, don't lose a lot of sleep about eating animals but would prefer not to do so if we could get something cheaper that also matched or exceeded the quality. That pretty much describes the main purpose of technology too, to find more cheap and efficient means of satisfying human needs and desires without sacrificing quality or even improving it. This is what we'll focus on then, targeting on approaches that let us have our steak and eat it too. But let me put a word of warning out about any argument that focuses on telling people not to do something because it's inefficient. First, it's a bit of a loser on the policy front, because it tends to attract vocal advocates that come off as self-righteous, and we all loathe those people, even if we're almost all guilty of it too, on something. And second, one always wants to be careful what doors you open. Personally, I love a good salad I grew myself in my own garden and picked minutes before it went in the dish, but if we're aiming for efficiency, not only is meat inefficient, but so is home gardening, and worse, so are plants. Animals, being what they are, like to walk around, fly, fight, migrate, and whatnot, which is the stuff that makes life exciting, but it's all very energy intensive, and thermodynamics means eating plants for that, let alone eating animals that ate those plants, is not very efficient. But if you think the calorie per acre drop-off from plants to meat is bad, you don't even want to know what it is from sunlight to corn or wheat. Getting 10 million food calories, or 42 gigajoules, out of an acre per year is pretty good farming for even a staple crop, and to keep things round and metric we'll say 100 gigajoules a hectare. That same hectare gets about 100 gigajoules of sunlight in a few hours of daytime. Depending on where you're farming and what you're farming and how, you're getting at best a 0.1% conversion of sunlight to food energy. That's one of the reasons we like to discuss concepts like hydroponics or vertical farming or space farming here on the channel. We can do way better when we control all the factors and can ensure every photon of light is optimized in its use. This, again, is exactly what we mean when we say technology is about getting us more of what we want for less, or things we could not even have had before, being hyper-efficient at producing what we want, not at sculpting those wants to what is efficient. Personal restraint is a good thing, 
but I tend to feel it should be personal, not imposed or pressured wherever possible, and we do research and technology to expand our options, not limit them. Our topic today being synthetic meat, it's also important to remember that it is merely the most urgent thing to synthesize. If we can start synthesizing other foods more economically and ecologically than we can grow them, then that will come next. Done right, it means fresh food on demand and ridiculously cheap and high in quality that is equal or better to traditional foods in every important way. Done wrong, it's where we get rather selective and high-handed in defining what the important part is. In this regard, we don't even want to limit ourselves to nutritional value, taste, texture, smell and look, but also remember why we like big barbecues and feasts so much. Which is to say, they appeal to our very primal enjoyment of sharing food and company while that food is prepared. Food and everything around it is one of the core drives and thus one of the fulcrums for things like stress, anxiety, confidence, camaraderie, and so on. There's a lot of debate about how early humans tended to eat, partially because you're talking about many thousands of years of many thousands of divorced tribes with changing options, and partially because it's hard for us to find out what types and ratios of food they actually ate. When you think about it, even when we do find an ancient corpse intact enough to analyze their stomach contents, that's a pretty dubious sample since it was their last meal, the thing they ate before they died which typically was not from what we call natural causes. Even those few who did die of old age probably did it mostly toothless and thus not eating their preferred lifetime diet, so excuse the sample a bit. Of course we do know what our ancestors mostly ate, and that was mostly nothing. Hunger was a pretty common thing for them, and most of us nowadays don't really know that feeling of grinding despair that prolonged and regular deprivation causes, or the joy that came when the hunters or gatherers came in carrying a deer or sack of tubers and they could turn to their kids and tell them they were eating today and well. Our barbecues and feasts commemorate that very old and very primal relief and joy and companionship that occurs in the acquisition, preparation, and consumption of such bounty with our friends and family. Which is not to say you should rush off to one today or start planning a dinner party, nor casually glut yourself, but personally, just speaking for myself, I tend to find hobbies like gardening or cooking or hosting or attending very positive things for oneself and others, and dare say a lot of folks would be happier if they spent more time doing that and less time online or watching TV except for the show of course, which you should watch and subscribe and like and share with others. Needless to say, an excess of these things isn't a great idea either, I just got done with a year and a half of diet and exercise to get back into the shape I was in when I left the army and knock off the hundred pounds my joy of cooking gifted me. But yeah, feasts are good things, go enjoy life, but with moderation. I get asked a lot on Memorial Day if, as a veteran, I approve of folks having cookouts on Days of Remembrance, and I always say yes, just don't forget what the day is about, which I tend to assume they have since they asked my opinion without using a Ouija board, wrong holiday. Whether in celebration or mourning or both at once, sharing a meal with loved ones is often a good thing. Key thing, before we finally get into the meat of today's topic, 
is that food is about more than simple physical sustenance, so anything we do which is synthetic needs to address more than that. It also offers us some real new opportunities. If I can vat grow or print a rhino steak or elephant burger, that's something I can eat guilt free. Indeed, it could even be beneficial if some of the profits and R&D efforts are being directed to maintaining nature preserves for rhinos or elephants. Always look for those extras. If I can bring back an extinct species like the dodo or the mammoth from related technologies to growing exotic meats or vice versa, that's a very good thing. So too, if I can synthesize bread flour or rice in huge vats or printers, instead of in a field that could be used for other things, and at a fraction of the price, and with a far more varied nutritional and flavor spectrum. I mean if you like bacon bits on your salad, wouldn't a bacon salad be even cooler? And while one might question the ethics of funding de-extinction technology just to have a mammoth burger or dino steak, if that ultimately ends in being able to visit the zoo and see a saber-toothed tiger while eating some Kentucky Fried Raptor that never involved a slaughterhouse, and which resulted in no expanding waistline or hardening arteries because we'd better mastered biotechnology and medicine, that's hard to argue as anything but awesome. Our main focus today is going to be on the current efforts, mostly on the printing of various modern meats, but we don't want to ignore what really impressive biotechnology might offer, and that might be some surprising things, like a hybrid apple tree whose apples were rich not just in proteins, but those essential amino acids human bodies don't make and often are deficient in plants, or an apple tree whose apples were actually meat, which sounds pretty creepy when you think about what that sap might need to be, but especially as we move out from Earth to new worlds we've claimed or built, creating some decidedly new and evolutionarily implausible ecologies does seem like the sort of thing we'd do, and we'll look at that more throughout the summer. I should also mention another alternative on that is to grow the whole critter without a brain. There are a lot of mutations in animals that cause a condition known as microcephaly, literally tiny head. As you might guess these mutations result in animals with small heads and small brains. In fact, in some cases mutant animals will be born with nothing but a brainstem, in other words, no actual cognitive function, so we are talking about cows, pigs, and chickens that are really just living meat in the shape of an animal. It sounds rather ghastly too, like something from the Matrix, though arguably less so than eating something with a brain but it does make that apple meat tree sound nicer. Until relatively recently, most meat alternatives were usually either focused on actual meat alternatives like eating bugs or some other animal we deemed healthier or more efficient, or taking plants like soybean or mushrooms and making into products that looked or tasted more like meat. I got raised mostly vegetarian so I tried a lot of those growing up, and I actually liked some of them but never thought they tasted much like meat. If you're curious, my mom is a vegetarian, not for ethical reasons, she just doesn't like meat, but you typically have to enjoy a food to cook it well, so I was usually quite happy as a kid to eat veggie too, at home anyway. But while my love of vegetables hasn't waned, I'm not personally fond of most meat substitutes, nor do I regard them as even vaguely tasting like the meat they allegedly substituted, even when they were tasty in their own right, which some are. I choose to view them as a new type of food though, rather than a replacement. Synthetic meats aim to be the real deal, 
so we might as well ask how we make the basic meat cells. As you probably know, meat is mostly made out of proteins, which are one of the basic types of building blocks of life, although it certainly has fat too and a negligible amount of carbohydrates, two other types of life's basic building blocks. It turns out that plants also have all three of these building blocks, but in different variations and in different quantities, so if you want to turn plants into meat, you really need to take a very close look at the specific types of proteins and fats found in the meat you want to copy, then go and find some plants that make those specific proteins and fats, if not in the same quantities, and break them apart biochemically or even synthesize them in a lab. This actually has already been done for beef, and the exact process was a lot more weird than you're probably imagining. Basically scientists digested a bit of beef to get it into a form that could be processed, then fed this slurry into something called a chromatography column, which is basically just a packed substrate that separates molecules based on physical properties. They let this drip through the column and at the bottom they collected all the individual building blocks, each and every type of protein and fat, and gave these samples to human tasters. The tasters wrote descriptions of each component, which is really the only way you can figure out how the different parts contribute to the overall beefiness, and a synthetic beef was assembled by putting the parts back together again based upon how their flavor was described by the tasters. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that, since the order you add the parts and any sort of additional treatment is important, especially for the finished texture. For this beef version 1.0, they stuck with a ground up product, the type you would use in hamburger, which is a bit of a cheat since it doesn't have to have many significant textures, but you've got to start somewhere. You can imagine that steaks are going to be a bit trickier, but certainly not impossible, and will likely involve some 3D printing process, where the individual proteins and fats are added layer by layer as the steak is built up. But once you master steaks, you can really go after any fully textured product, like chicken breasts, pork chops, or fish fillets, the sky's the limit. This is very expensive, and also not ideal either. One of the big costs is the growing medium, and that frequently involves animal blood, which would rather defeat the point of the process if you're aiming to not kill animals, though I suppose sucking a liter of blood out of livestock every few weeks is nicer than the alternative. One of the processes looking to make this all way cheaper is a new serum which creates its ideal cocktail of sugars, salts, and amino acids in giant bioreactors and recycles and filters them during the growth process to be less wasteful. The first lab-grown burger cost $325,000 in 2013, two years later it was down to $36 a pound or $80 a kilogram. Needless to say, that's still way too pricey and the cost has dropped a bit more since. You can actually buy this stuff too, but not a lot and we're still talking ground beef, not a porterhouse steak. Still, we've got some plausible indicators it might be price competitive or even cheaper in the next few years, and I'd feel fairly confident they'll be for sale in most restaurants for a decent price and quality inside a decade. The burgers, mind you. Let's talk steak. Cells in a petri dish only have to be fed enough to split into more cells and form the shape and size that we want, they won't grow into inedible bone, organs, or hair, and certainly won't waste precious energy galloping across the pasture, unless something goes horribly wrong in the laboratory. 
so in theory this is cheaper and should just be a matter of time. But we actually want that bone for some meats and moreover, those cells aren't growing in anything like the right ways in a petri dish to make a cut of meat. So that can presumably be improved over time, but tends to lean us more toward the printer approach, grow the stock and print it out, at the lowest resolution we can get away with since as we noted in the Santa Claus machine, the more zoomed in you try to print, the slower everything goes since each layer is thinner. Indeed we got our first lab grown steak some months back, but it was only 5mm thick, a fifth of an inch, and had an estimated cost of $50. So we're getting there as both the growth techniques and general 3D printing technology improve, but you'll probably be replacing your grill before you can be throwing these on there for equal or cheaper than current steaks. Pass the taste test though, and we can rely on improvements to technology and economy of scale to help there. Of course I should note that cost of food isn't always the dominant factor in sales, and a niche premium market for stuff ought to help fund improvements, and we do seem to see that already developing. Hard to guess, but I'd expect that to come in from three angles, premium sales to those with ethical objections but a fondness for meat, bulk production of ground meats that circumvent the printer, and probably an exotic meats market. That one is hard to guess as I think many folks would be aghast at eating elephant even if it never was an elephant, but if the company were kicking part of the profit to elephant nature preserves, it might suddenly become all the rage. Also a motivation for research into growing or printing bone too, for meat cuts like the T-bone or for artificial ivory. Exotic meats, even those from outright extinct creatures, could get to be a big thing as it's a totally different flavor. But for most folks who enjoy meat, the absolute best thing they can imagine is a perfectly grilled steak, seasoned to perfection, and sorted with all the right sides and in good company. But just like it's hard for us to imagine the beauty of a sunset on Saturn with its rings and exotic gases and how it might actually be more spectacular than one on Earth, it can be really hard to imagine how meat could get any better than that perfect steak. But why couldn't it? Earlier we talked about building synthetic meat from basic protein and fat building blocks in proportions determined by human tasters to try to replicate beef as closely as possible. There is no reason to stop at beef as we know it though once we've captured the essence of what people like about it. Such things offer a motivation to develop the technology even if it did bottleneck at a price above traditional meat production, because it's something you can't get traditionally but that also applies to places where normal meat would just not be viable. As we move out to space, to go look at the sunset on Saturn or the Earthrise on the Moon, it's often not going to be convenient to take a thousand acres of pasture land with you, or even just a stable where the animals could be fed hydroponically grown food themselves, in which case bioreactors and meat printers allow relatively small and automated production of any type of meat and in the types and amounts a handful of people want, so nothing is getting discarded on some ship or small space station or asteroid mining site, nor have to be flown in at likely outrageous prices and frozen or freeze-dried to save mass. Such technology opens the doors to just having such a printer right in your home, but I should say realistically such printers will likely never be so fast they could compete with a grocery store especially one with rapid drone deliveries, which I'm betting will be a thing, artificial meat or not, within a decade or two tops. 
If the print times for a typical steak can be reduced to a few hours, rather than a few weeks like it is currently, we might start seeing meat printers in home like we see bread makers though. I suspect households with pets might see the critters parking themselves impatiently next to the Metatron 3000 though. Exciting options for the near future and the not too distant future too, though hard to predict the specifics and timelines given how much tastes vary. Like a lot of technology, it offers some great options and fixes a lot of problems, but there is no way we can imagine how good it will be until we taste it. One big aspect of today's topic is that when we improve our knowledge of science for one thing, it often helps us solve problems in related areas and find new challenges. The ability to mass manufacture artificial stakes is likely to have a big impact on all sorts of other areas of biology and medicine, like being able to grow or clone replacement organs or synthesize macromolecules for many other medical uses. While we tend to focus more on this channel on physics, biology is every bit as critical to humanity's future, and in some ways, more so. If you'd like to learn more about it, try out the Computational Biology course on Brilliant. Their online courses and daily challenges let you enhance your knowledge of math and science with easy to learn interactive methods from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. To make it even easier, Brilliant now lets you download any of their dozens of interactive courses through the mobile app and you'll be able to solve fascinating problems in math, science, and computer science no matter where you are or how spotty your internet connection is. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, go to brilliant.org slash and sign up for free. And also, the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription, so you can solve all the daily challenges in the archives and access dozens of problem-solving courses. We'll be looking more at advanced applications of biotechnology this summer, starting with a look at bioships, void ecology, and space whales in a couple weeks. Before that though, we noted today that these technologies would be critical to letting us get into space so we could see the rings of Saturn up close or watch the Earth rise on the Moon, and next week we'll take a look at space tourism. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell, and if you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.